centurion's servant was healed from afar. Those are the first 10 verses of chapter 7. Now we pick up in verse 11. Another marvelous incident. So we're in Luke 7, chapter, uh, verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. He was in Capernaum, north shore of the Sea of Galilee. That's where he set up his headquarters. To get to Nain, you go about 25 miles. Small city, only significant because of this incident. He went there, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. And as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. Out, because they didn't bury in the city. They buried out. He's being carried. In other words, the Lord came upon a funeral procession. He's described as the only son of his only this isn't a Greek lesson, but I want to tell you this. Monogenes is the word. Only begotten son. Have you heard it before? It's the same word used of the Lord. Monogenes. One of a kind. Irreplaceable. Only begotten son. One only begotten son is about to confront another only begotten son. But there's a difference. One died. The other has the capacity to give life. Uh It's a very crushing blow to this lady because she's a widow. So her husband passed. He was the means of her support. In this day, women did not work. There was no social service system to speak of. So a lady was beholden to her husband. He passed. Therefore, the male child, only son, provided for his mom's support. He's gone. So she's grieving not only the loss of the son relationally, but her whole financial situation is now up in the air. And a sizable crowd was with her. The village would get to, they'd share in the grieving process. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion. That's what he's like. He's not raw power alone. His raw power is tempered by a heart of compassion That's why you and I are still here. (laughs) If it was just raw power, we would be in trouble. It is raw power. It is power um, tempered by this compassionate heart. And he said to her, don't weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. What's unusual about that? You got it right. See, he would have incurred, according to the law, a kind of a ceremonial defilement. You cannot touch a dead body. He did. Why? You see, when the Lord touches one, that one's uncleanness is not transferred to him, uh, but what he has to offer is transferred to the other. That's what happened when the Lord touched us. He didn't get our sin. We got his forgiveness. You see? So he touched. Now, I don't think of a coffin in the traditional sense. They didn't use coffins as we do closed coffins. It was a pallet, and the man was being carried, exposed on a pallet, being carried. They would take him to a place either carved out of the limestone, put him in it, or in something called a sarcophagus, a box, stone box. And the word sarcophagus means flesh eater because you'd put the body in it it would deteriorate and all that would be left after a spell are the bones good topic 
So either in the limestone, the lime stone would accelerate the deterioration process or the sarcophagus. So in about 30 days, all you have are bones, flesh is gone. Then they take the bones and they bury it underground. So that's kind of what the custom was. And the bearers came to a halt when the Lord touched the coffin. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. Interesting. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Those are two evidences of life. He sat up and began to speak, and there were lots of witnesses. Remember, it says at the beginning, a crowd followed the Lord there, and there was already a crowd there. One crowd was following him to see more and hear more of what he had to offer, and the other crowd was in the funeral procession. I'm just trying to to tell you the events in the Lord's life were witnessed by plenty of people. So the man sat up and began to speak. Boy, I'd love to know what he said, but it's not recorded. We just have to wait. We don't know what he said. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Uh, this is not the first time the Lord raised someone from the dead. It's actually the third recorded. There are three times it recorded in the Gospels when he raised. There was Jairus' daughter, and there was someone named Lazarus, and now this third one. You know, technically, they were resuscitated, not resurrected, because they died again, didn't they? Uh, really, the first one to be... Technically, resurrected, never to die again, is the Lord Jesus. How about you? See, see, he's the first fruits of life from death. He's the resurrection in the life. And so if you're connected to him, I hope you are, it's important, you'll live again. Death, that's a terrible enemy. It's called the last enemy to be defeated and the Lord dead. Oh, death, where is your Sting. It's gone. It's gone. We pass. If we know the Lord now, we pass on to be with him forever. See how important it is to know the Lord Jesus. Good of you to be here today, but not good enough. If you just come and go, disconnected from him, he's the resurrection and the life, not this church, not us. He. I hope you've allowed him to touch you. (laughs) Forgive your sin. Assure you of eternal life. I hope so. So anyway, uh, fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God and saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. Not really. All right, they're on the right track. They know he's special, but they don't understand how special he is. He's a great prophet. That's nothing more than what the Quran says about him. (laughs) That's what Islam teaches. Jesus is a prophet. That's why Islam is a false religion. You know the term radical Islam? There's no such thing. If you are a faithful Muslim, it's very radical. The only non-radical Muslims are those who are not good Muslims. <clears throat> because the Quran, the Holy Book of Islam teaches there's only two option for people, options for people like you and me. By the way, we're called infidels, so feel good about yourself. You're an infidel. You convert or you be killed. That's the teaching of the Quran. Those are the only two options. That's the way it is. Far-fetched? No. Look at Europe. Changing face of Europe. You know, uh, the so-called Arab Spring, which is supposed to be granting freedom to people, are you joking me? One word, Egypt. Two words, Muslim Brotherhood. Gaddafi's gone. Who's going to take his place? 
It's going to be worse, folks. Uh, Islam is a religion of conquest. Convert or be killed. Uh, polls are being done by Egyptians, by Libyans. The vast majority are in favor of Sharia law. That means women, start putting on your crazy garments with two eye slits and turn in your driver's licenses and walk six paces behind. And uh, yeah, it means all kinds of stuff. Sharia law. There are inroads in our country. Sharia law. I'm not worried. Jesus who gave new life to this guy, knows everything, knows all things. Just be on the right side, that's all. It's not to be anti-Muslim. It's to be anti-Satan. You know what I mean? Be on the Lord's side. So anyway, they say he's a great prophet. Nah, they fall short. Anyway, the report about him, verse 17, goes all the way to Judea, but it's in Galilee. The north now goes to the south. Boy, the news is spreading. And the disciples of John report to him about all this stuff. This is John the Baptist. His disciples report to him what's happening. Why did they have to report to him? Because he wasn't there. But where was he? In jail. Herod put him in jail. Josephus tells us it was at a place called Makeros, probably down by the Dead Sea. He's in jail at the time. So summoning two of his disciples, John summoned two of his disciples. He sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? What's up with that? Didn't he believe in Jesus? Yeah, he did. Hang on. Look at here. John has an expectation of what's going to happen when Messiah comes. He will set the captives free. It's one of the signs of the messianic reign. Yeah, but John's in jail. He doesn't look very free. He said, what about my freedom? Not only that, the Romans are still oppressing the Jews and all the rest. They're occupying the land. So he sends two followers saying, could you ask him, are you really the Messiah or should I continue the search? That's what he says. Does he have doubts? Yeah, he does. Because his expectation of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do is much different than what Jesus did. What are your expectations? Is he the political Messiah? You're going to be disappointed. He did not come to overturn the corrupt governments of the world yet. Oh, he will. He did not come to cure uh, all cancer, heart disease, and all the rest yet. (laughs) You know what he came to do? He came to deal with the biggest problem, sin. Yours and mine. At the biggest cost, his own life, in order to give us the biggest blessing. Freedom from the penalty, presence, and power of sin. He came to do what no politician, no doctor, no nobody could do. I hope you have the right expectation. You know, sometimes we get into trouble. We say, oh, God, I know you're good, but if you're good, why is this happening to me? See, so you just told me what your expectation of Messiah is. You think he's Santa Claus. If you're good, you should give me good stuff. But he never said, no, 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 no. He came to forgive our sin. That's the big problem. When he establishes his kingdom on earth, just wait. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
All the rest will be taken care of. But he came to take care of the number one thing, the sin problem. So John has questions about this. And so when the men came to him, to the Lord, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the expected one or do we look for someone else? At that very time, he cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits. And he gave sight to many who were blind. And he answered and said to them, go, report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have the gospel preached to them. You know what the Lord said? Let what I have declared be backed up by what I have demonstrated. Go tell John what I did. Why? Because the Jewish prophets say, you'll know the Messiah in the Messianic age by things like this happening. Jesus said, things like this are happening. Tell him I am the one he looked for I am the expected one. Notice the last thing in the list of things that he did. The poor have the gospel preached. It specifically says the poor have the gospel preached. Interesting. The poor in the Lord's day were the lepers, the widows, the Gentiles, all the, the marginalized people of society, the sick, the infirm, the demon-possessed, all the rest. They were not part of the elite, religious or political at all. The poor, that's why one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. They were already underclass, on the outskirts, didn't fit. Who am I? Who cares for me? Where's my community? Who do I connect with? And the Lord Jesus said, with me. The poor have the God. Who's the poor in our midst today? Maybe the same, but also someone who's lost a husband is poor in spirit. Someone who's lost a job. Someone whose health has diminished. You need to know that your accentuated need may be the very thing that opens you up for what the Lord Jesus has for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit. doesn't mean he doesn't save rich people. It just means it's harder for them to be saved. Why? Poverty, I don't mean just financial. Lack, let's put it that way, lack. Emotional, physical, vocational, interpersonal, familial, marital, whatever it is. Lack accentuates our longing for the void to be filled. But if someone thinks, I got it together, I got everything there's no room for Jesus if you got everything. You just squeezed him out, right? So sometimes the most blessed thing that could happen to you or me is for us to be empty so that we could look to the Lord to fill the void. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he says, blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. Verse 23. See, some would take offense at him. They would say, you don't look like the Messiah. You look like a carpenter's son. The Romans are still here. What's going on? The bad guys are still beating up on us. There's still lots of corruption in the world. What's up? The Lord said, blessed are you if you don't stumble over your expectation of who I am to be. You're blessed if you accept me for who I am. I came to be your savior from your sin. I did not come to overturn the world's institutions, corrupt though they may be, yet. Yet is the word. Yet is the word. Well, when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Interesting. John wanted to know more about him, and he wanted the crowds to know more about John. 
He said, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? He's speaking to the crowds who had been out there in Judea to see John. What did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? They would answer, oh, no, of course not. You know why? A reed shaken by the wind is commonplace. You didn't go out there to see that which is common and ordinary. You had some notion that John was different, that he was special. Nobody goes out to see to see a reed blowing in the desert. Then he says, well, did what'd you go out to see? Did you go out to see a man dressed in soft clothing? No, no, no. Those who are splendidly clothed and live in luxury are found in royal palaces. You didn't go out to see some somebody ordinary, and you didn't go out to see someone like real lavishly bedecked with the attire of the wealthy because you would go to some palace, not to the desert. You know you were looking for someone unusual and different and and you're right because because he is. See, what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I say to you, but but but, but one who is more than a prophet. You're right to have gone out to see John. You know what the Lord is saying? I'm not rebuking him for his doubts. You know why? Doubts are different than unbelief. You know what unbelief says? I hear the truth, I reject the truth out of a hardened heart. That's unbelief. You know what doubt says? I'm wrestling with the truth. I'm trying to comprehend the truth. I'm trying to harmonize truths. That's okay. That's the way it is for all of us. We're trying to reconcile the goodness with God and then some of the bad stuff we see going on even in our own lives. And we're crying out. We're saying, oh, God, I, I can't put it together. I wouldn't do things this way. But God doesn't rebuke us for that. Good night. You're going to the right person. So he doesn't. Re- not only does he not rebuke John, look at he lauds him. He says he's special. This is the one, verse 27, about whom it is written. Now he quotes from Malachi. Behold, I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's great, the Lord says of John, because he's the one Malachi said will be the forerunner before I come and inaugurate my messianic ministry. I say to you, among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. And yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I want to ask you a question. You don't have to raise your hand. Just wiggle your toes. Are you in the kingdom of God? It's yes or no. Don't play games. It's yes or no. Are you in the kingdom of God? If so, wiggle your toes. Good. Now, if you're a toe wiggler, you ought to be thrilled. Because as great as John was, listen to me, he's the forerunner prophesied by Malachi. He gets to inaugurate, to introduce the Lord's messianic ministry. He's really special. The Lord even says he's special. (laughs) But if you wiggled your toes as an indication, you believe you're in the kingdom of God. He who is even least in the kingdom is greater than he. It's greater privilege (laughs) to be a subject of the king than to have any particular position in the kingdom. It's not about role or position. It's just about inclusion. Do you have the king or do you not? The king will have you if you let him. That's the way it is. When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers, political and religious leaders of the day, Pharisees and Lawyers, political and religious leaders of the day. We got some of them even today. They rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then, the Lord says, shall I compare the men, 
those political and religious leaders and others like them, to what shall I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? So here's a little bit of an analogy. They're like children who sit in the marketplace. They call to one another. And they say, we played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't weep. It's fickle kids. One group of kids said, hey, 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 I'll play happy music. Let's dance. And the other kids say, I don't want to do it. And another group says, I'll play sad music. Will you respond to that? And they say, no. Nothing pleases them. Is it about children? No. It's about the political and religious leaders of the day of whom the Lord is essentially saying, nothing will please you people. Here's the application. Very next verse. Look. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. That was his commitment. He took a vow. He lived an aesthetic ascetic lifestyle, kind of a Nazarite vow, they call it. No wine, didn't eat certain foods, no partying, no nothing. He's the guy who wouldn't go to movies, didn't have a TV, whatever the deal was. This is, this is what John the Baptist did. He came to you that way. You said he has a demon. By contrast, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Isn't that interesting? Weddings. I shall be quiet. He lived a different kind of a... He made different decisions than John about certain of these matters of personal liberty that don't really matter. And you say, behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sin. One lived a separated life, very extremely separated uh, uh, the other, the Lord Jesus, was in the midst of all kinds of questionable people and at their parties and at their events and wine and the whole thing. That's what the text says. And it doesn't matter because the, uh, the that generation and ones like them rejected them both. It didn't matter how they lived their lifestyle. Some wore suits and ties, some did not. You know, we make big issues over this stuff. Churches divide over this. Some uh, are engaged in contemporary worship, some more traditional. Well, you know, you have splits over this. You know what the Lord is saying? It doesn't matter. We can rack our brain to make the gospel message palatable to a, 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 a consuming society. And it doesn't matter. You're either going to accept or reject the gospel message. Whether it's happy music, like at a wedding, whether it's sad music, like at a funeral, what's the difference? John is different than me, I'm different than John, says the Lord Jesus, but our message is exactly the same. Sinners need a Savior, and you have rejected it all. So today, we churches, we're going nuts to try to figure out, how do we toe the line? What kind of service? How do we dress? What kind of music? Some drink, some don't drink. I mean, we have some dance, some don't. I mean, all this kind of stuff. What difference does it make? Those who have the sun have the life. Those who do not have the sun don't have the life. All the rest of the stuff are matters of Christian liberty. Who cares? It doesn't make a difference with respect to salvation. So you see what the, now I know I'm getting into trouble, but you know, as I get older, I, I don't get bolder, I get more foolish. That's what it is when you get old, and I say stuff I, I shouldn't say. I, I mean, the church is just wrapped up, even in our church here, with stuff. 
Who cares? Who cares how you dress on? And we should care. Don't I mean? I mean, the mode of dress should not be such that it calls undue attention to yourself in a good way. Or shouldn't be too tight. Shouldn't be too short. Shouldn't be too sloppy. Shouldn't be. It should almost understand what I'm saying. We, we we want to fit in and give worship to the Lord Jesus. But as far as the specific fashion, who cares? As far as the specific musical style. Everyone's entitled to a preference. Don't misunderstand. I shouldn't minimize it too much. But we use that as, as barometers of spirituality. What decisions I make in matters of Christian liberty may be different than yours. Who cares? Don't use them as, as barometers of spirituality. No, 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 no. You got John, they called him demon-possessed. You got the Lord Jesus, they'd say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Totally different perspectives. Totally different. But it's not the issue. You know what the issue is? It's the gospel message. How are you responding to it? He says it doesn't matter what we do. You're not responding to it. But wisdom is vindicated by her children. Verse 35. It's kind of a metaphor. The vindication for the truth of the gospel is the effect in the lives of those who believe it. What the Lord Jesus came to offer is vindicated. That wise message of reconciliation with a holy God is vindicated by ones like you and me who accept the message. Wisdom is vindicated by her children. Those who are not give no vindication to it and there's no pleasing them. It doesn't matter what the fashion, what the custom is, what hoops you jump through. But wisdom is vindicated by her children. That's what it says. Now one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And... uh, He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. If you get it, they didn't sit at table. You know how this is. It was a low table. They'd lean on their left hand. They'd be on kind of a couch. Their feet would be back here. They would eat with their right hand. They would have table conversation, this kind of thing. So they're reclining at table. And there was a woman in the city. She was a sinner, possibly sexually immoral, possibly a prostitute. I don't know. She was a sinner. When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. How did such a questionable woman get in? But it was different in the Middle East in those days. If someone was going to entertain a special dignitary or guest, you could not be invited to recline at table, but you can come. You received a lot of hustle and bustle. You could fill the house. You could stay to the back and listen to the conversation. That's the way it is. It's Middle Eastern sort of open-door hospitality. You're low class. Don't misunderstand. You're not invited to sit at the table. You have no, you, you, you can't enter into the conversation, but you could listen. So she comes with an alabaster vial, alabaster is a stone, kind of a translucent stone. It was typical. It would carry expensive perfume. How do you get it out? You break it. Pour the contents out. So she comes with this. She stands, see, behind him at his feet. She's not reclining there. She's not invited. She's standing behind his feet, the Lord's feet. She's weeping. Why? I don't know. Maybe she's weeping over her life. Maybe she's saying, oh, how degraded I have become. How dirty I feel. Maybe she's weeping because she knows he's the Savior from it all. I don't know. She's weeping to such an extent uh, that she began to wet his feet with her tears and she kept wiping them with the hair of her head. Now, if you get this, that means she had to rearrange it. You see what it meant? Be up. She has to put it down. She's wiping. It's not very dignified. 
it's just very devoted. She's wiping uh, the tears with the hair of her head and she's kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to, not to the Lord, he said to himself, he's thinking, the Pharisee, unnamed at this point, is thinking, you know, if this man, Yeshua, Jesus, if he was a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this person is and who's touching him. He would know she's a sinner. And Jesus answered. Jesus answered his thoughts. Holy moly. God does that. He's omniscient. He answered. Now we know the guy's name. Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replied, say it, teacher, meaning rabbi. Here's the illustration. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. 500, the equivalent of a year and a half's wages. 50, two months. Different indebtedness. When both were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them is going to love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one who forgave, whom he forgave more. And Jesus said, you have judged, you have answered correctly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet. It's Middle East, they're traveling around by foot, sandals, dirty feet. No hospitality, no foot washing, but she washed his feet. He says, she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, Middle Eastern deal, not on the lips. Cheek to cheek kind of a deal. You didn't do that, but she's kissed my, hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, not too expensive. She anointed my feet with perfume, much more expensive. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, which are many, have been forgiven because she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You know what the Lord is saying? Simon, you and I agree on something. She's a sinner. Here's where we disagree. You don't think you are. You think she is. You don't think you are. You are too. You don't think you owe me as much a debt as she does. And it's obvious. You're showing no devotion, no gratitude, no worship. She realizes because her sins are so many. And she has received such a great forgiveness. She is expressing it with unbridled worship and gratitude at great personal cost. This perfume, perhaps, was what all that she had. And she is, she is, she's using it to, to, to anoint me. She was not forgiven because of what she is doing. What she is doing is the evidence of the fact that she has already been forgiven. Don't miss it. The rest of the text will make this clear. Don't be thinking, if I do works like this, I will be forgiven. There's no works sufficient to get us forgiveness. No, it's faith in the work of Christ. The works she did are the evidence that she has already been forgiven. But how? The text doesn't tell us. That's right, it doesn't. But remember, he's gone hither and yon to preach the gospel to the poor in spirit. She heard somewhere. 
She accepted. She came just to be there near her Savior, just to anoint Him, just to love Him, just to worship Him. He, no, because he didn't think he owed the Lord anything. So then he said to her, the Lord said to her, your sins have been forgiven. It's a reassuring message. They've already been forgiven. He repeats it. Why does he have to repeat it? Why do you have to be reminded? Because we doubt. In manifold ways, therefore, the Lord reassures us of our salvation, doesn't he? By the way, in the Greek, this is the perfect tense. See where it says your sins have been forgiven? Perfect. It's a certain construction, and it means something took place in the past, but it has ongoing ramifications for the present and the future. What took place in the past is that he pronounced forgiveness upon her, but it has ramifications for the present. It endures into the future. The perfect tense in the Greek is the most pregnant with meaning. Whenever I find a perfect tense here in the New Testament, I go crazy. I circle it. I go crazy. I say, oh, God, I hope the rapture doesn't come before Sunday because I can't wait to get this out. Perfect tense is not something that happened in the past and it's over and done with. You've got to keep at it. No, 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 no. Perfect tense is action that took place. It's an event, but it continues on. Its benefits continue on. And a perfect tense is the assurance of your salvation. You understand what I'm Okay. So your your sins have been forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins forevermore will be forgiven. That's essentially what's going on over here. Well, those who were reclining at the table with him began to say to themselves, "Who is this man who even forgives sins?" They gasped. Who would dare to lay claim to the authority to forgive sins? And so they're wondering what's going on. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. See where I get? It wasn't the uh, application of the perfume and all the rest that saved her. No, 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 no. As with her, so too with us. Your faith has saved you. Those other things are the evidence of her faith. Your faith has saved you. Go in shalom. Go in peace. Are you kidding me? That woman has never, ever, ever had peace with God. And now the pronouncement is made. Now you can go in peace, cleansed, rightly related. The past is over. Go in peace. Folks, this whole chapter has a design to it. It's Luke, the physician slash historian, wanting for us to make the right decision about who this Jesus is. He wrote it to this man, Theophilus, at the beginning, whoever he is, some dignitary, to prove the merits of Christ. But by extension, he wants us each to be right about Jesus being the Savior as well. So he started out in this text with the healing of the centurion's servant, and it was a great miracle indeed. Second was the raising of the widow's son in Nain, which we just read about, an even greater miracle. Thirdly, the greatest miracle of all, when he saved this woman of her sins, made her a new person, and granted her peace with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. That's the greatest miracle of all. Who is this one who even forgives sins? He backed up his capacity and authority to forgive sins by first demonstrating his healing power 
in the power of his word with this centurion servant, even his power over the last enemy death. And now he's saying, let those uh, persuade you that I have the capacity and the authority and the willingness to forgive sins. Let the works authenticate and substantiate the words. Go in peace. Anyone could say that. Your sins are forgiven. Anyone could say that. But the Lord Jesus is saying, no, 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 it's not just a declaration. I'm backing it up by a demonstration. Though anyone could declare those things, not everyone can demonstrate these things. The demonstration of these unique things shows that I alone am uniquely positioned to declare this truth. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. That is the greatest miracle of all. Why? It came at the greatest cost. And it's the greatest need. And it has the greatest benefits. The greatest cost? Blood of the only begotten. Monogenes, the only begotten son of the Father. Greatest cost. Greatest need? It is not the political system renovated. It's not economics. It's nothing to do with war and all the other kind of stuff. I don't want to ruin anyone's day, but those things are not getting fixed this side of heaven. It is just shocking to me to see the ones who propose solutions on all sides of the issues. Holy Toledo, we're in trouble. He didn't come to be political messiah. He didn't come to be medical messiah. Good night. The state of American health care. Are you kidding me? I hope I'm not offending any medical people in here, but uh, modern American medicine doesn't seem to know what it's doing. Quite interesting to me. They know how to subject an afflicted person to a manifold expensive tests for legal liability purposes, only to tell you thereafter, yeah, you pulled your muscle. Well, man, why'd you put me in this goofball tube? Charge me $4,000, you know. Give me a doggone Tylenol and send me... I mean, it's... He didn't come to be the political messiah. He didn't come to be the medical messiah. He came to be the savior from sin at the greatest cost because that's our greatest problem. And to have it solved produces the greatest benefits. Would you think I'm arrogant if I tell you I'm going to heaven? Would you think I'm arrogant if I tell you when we take leave of one another, I'm going to walk out there and I'm at peace with Almighty God. Would you think I'm arrogant if I tell you I have right standing with Almighty God? Would you think I'm arrogant if I tell you I'm his son and I'm his kid? Would you think I'm arrogant if, if I tell you he has looked at all my sins and they're manifold and he has cast them all behind his back? He has forgiven me. Would you think I'm arrogant if I told you He, Almighty God put his very presence in my life? Would you think I'm arrogant if I told you God told me he'll never leave me or forsake me? Don't. He did say that. Who is this one who says those things? He's the one who can heal with his word. He's the one who can raise people from the dead. He's the one who said those things. It's not arrogance to believe him. It's very logical. It makes sense. Do you believe Jesus? I hope so. Lord God, we bow before you.
in our hearts. We anoint you with the measure of resources you have given to us. We sit at your feet as did this dear needy lady. In our hearts we weep. We remember what we have been like. and Rejoice over the transformation you have wrought in us. We thank you that we have peace now with you and as a result peace within and even a greater measure of peace with one another. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming. Thank you for establishing a point of contact by coming. Thank you, only begotten Son, for being the one who came to give life, abundant and eternal. Thank you for saving us from our number one problem. It's our sin problem. It's presence, it's power, and the penalty thereof. Thank you for saving us from all that. And thank you for one day wiping away every tear from our eyes. Thank you for changing the reality of this world into a new one when you sit on the throne, rule and reign. Thank you for that day when the lion will lie down with the lamb or whatever those animals are, I don't remember. When you will reverse conflict in the natural order even. Thank you when you will give us new bodies which cannot be affected by sickness or illness, demons anymore. They'll be glorified bodies. Thank you for all of that. Thank you when all world governmental leaders will be replaced and when every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus, you are Lord. Who is this one who forgives sins? You, Son of God. Only begotten Son of God, thank you for forgiving our sins by faith, confidence in your finished work on the cross for us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. Hope to see you next time. Zentite. That's a good sneeze.